Reduction of prices to conform to reduction of duties. Great savings to consumers by getting up clubs. Send for our new price list, and a club form will accompany it, containing full directions, making a large saving to consumers and remunerative to club organizers. The Great American Tea Company, 31 and 33 Vesey Street, New York. Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 40. Tonight's cup of tea is my blend of Oliver Pluff and Company Scottish breakfast with McNulty's Yunnan China Black, and it is delicious. Dark, robust, really kind of smacks you upside the head in the best possible way. Hmm. I've been grooving on this blend so hard recently. I. Found the Oliver Pluff Scottish breakfast to be not so much unremarkable as just、um, a little bit rich in a way that came ac- across as cloying to me. And the McNulty's Yunnan is a little bit one note, just kind of got a black tea edge to it, just nothing to write home about. But boy, you put those two together,、mm, it's one of my favorite blends. Highly recommended. You can see a picture. In the show notes, I always recommend following along with the show notes, so click that link. So, tonight's episode is going to be a little different because I'm going to ask for help. And I had a thought about my presentation, and I realized that this could be at least a partial solution to a conundrum that I've had ever since I started the podcast. On the one hand, I don't want to be boring. And I know that reading long ass articles from beginning to end is boring as fuck. But on the other hand, I don't want to distill and recast the articles. Because if I do that, I'm doing the very thing that I so <sighs> despise would be too strong. Let me put it this way. When I first came to study history in my 30s, I was a, a very late bloomer. The thing that made me gravitate towards historiography is I saw that vast gulf between what actually happened and the stories we tell about what happened. And it's the shape of that vast gulf that I find defining. That gulf. Tells us about ourselves. It tells us about the stories that we demand to be told rather than the truth. So, when I came to historical newspapers six years ago, that was the thing that drew me in. I was gobsmacked by the vast difference between a modern historical rendering. And how people of that time actually felt about their own world. Modern histories recast previous tellings so that what you end up with is successive layers of retellings, and even with the most scrupulous, assiduous historical rigor, there's drift. So if you go back to the source, You get a vibrant 
representation of what the people at the time, at least newspaper writers, I know that's a big caveat, but you're getting a you're getting it straight from the from the source in a sense. So that's the whole point of me doing this podcast, and that's why I like to preserve the integrity of the articles. But it leaves me with that um, with that conundrum. Don't want to be boring. Don't want to break up the integrity of the articles. But what just occurred to me is the articles that I want to talk about, all of which were published 150 years ago yesterday, have so many layers of contemporary politics and culture embedded in them that I want to tease out, that it becomes more obvious than ever that I don't have the time. I'm not going to be able to research every little facet of politics and culture that fed into the presence of those articles there on those pages. I'm following along with these newspapers from 100 and 150 years ago today, and I can't possibly keep up with all that. And what occurred to me last night is, hey, maybe I shouldn't be trying. I've got a lot more knowledge of this era than most people, so I can fill in a lot of those gaps, and I can just off the cuff provide a tremendous amount of context that the that the average person would never see. It would just go right over their head. But I don't have nearly as much knowledge as I would like, so maybe what I should be doing is parsing these articles in real time. I can take you part of the way. I can give you my knowledge that I've gleaned from six years of immersion in this era, but maybe I shouldn't try to do it all. Maybe I should just parse them in real time struggle with them, maybe the pressure of having you quote-unquote listening over my shoulder will make it a more dynamic exercise. And maybe the act of me wrangling with the articles in real time will be more engaging than me just dryly reciting them and then trying to insert my connective tissue in between. It's worth a try. So here goes. Again, This is from 150 years ago yesterday. Mm. Mm. Oh my God, that's good. Chicago Tribune, Monday, June 5th, 1871. Garrett Smith has nearly completed his 74th year, but has long, sorry, but has lost little of his old time vigor. In a conversation at Syracuse the other day, he said he favored the women's rights movement, but sternly denounced the view of marriage held by Mrs. Woodhull and her coterie. Hugh here. So there's a lot to unpack here. This is by far the highest ratio of cultural and political underpinnings feeding into an article to article length that I've seen in a long time. This is six lines, but there's so much to say about those six lines. Garrett Smith had a nervous breakdown after it was discovered that he contributed to John Brown's actions a hell of a lot more than the general public had known. I'm bringing that up because if you read that first line, and again, go to the show notes, Garrett Smith has nearly completed his 74th year, but has lost little of his old-time vigor. I think that's a veiled allusion to the fact that Garrett Smith did go into a decline before this was written, and he had lost a lot of his, his previous vigor by virtue of that nervous breakdown that he had. He had a good number of people across the country clamoring for his head on a pike, after those, after that letter from Garrett Smith was found on the person of John Brown after the raid on Harper's Ferry. So I think that was a, a veiled dig in that first sentence. Now, the other thing to say about this is Victoria Woodhull. Why did Victoria Woodhull come up 
now. Garrett Smith always makes bank for newspaper writers across the country anytime between uh, 1840 and, I don't know, 1870, 1880, because he's one of the richest, most outspoken, most influential, most accomplished abolitionists in the whole country. So anything he says is going to make ink. But Woodhull, well, she's in the news right now because of an article that you'll see directly below that first one in the show notes. The Planter's Almanac, May 17, 1871, just a couple of weeks previously. Victoria C. Woodhull recently lectured for the Radical Club at Syracuse and refused compensation. What do I want with money, said she. I make $100,000 per month out of my business. She further stated that she often spent $20,000 per month in spreading her sentiments on female suffrage. Hugh here. So, that article got printed in various newspapers across the country. There was surprisingly little commentary. I got the sense that it more or less spoke for itself as a veiled, snide casting of aspersions on Woodhull for being someone really good at making money, so good at making money that she didn't even care about getting her, her speaking commission. So she's really this, this rich celebrity just in it for the, the fame and the money. She doesn't really have any, any moral underpinnings to what she's doing. That, that's the sense that I get. I, I didn't read anyone saying that, but um, trust me, in this era, the women's suffrage movement is so strong and so active that there's this unspoken undercurrent of, of snideness in the media, and a lot of writers just jumped on any opportunity they could find to cast aspersions on that movement. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of editorial shorthand going on. So, what I'm getting at here is that this writer was mashing up Garrett Smith and Victoria Woodhull into a meme. Uh, and it's a very modern meme. It's, hey, Garrett Smith, what's, what's your hot take on Victoria Woodhull? Again, the social media 150 years ago is stunningly similar to the social media of today. Give me your hot take, and I'm going to slap that on the page, and it's going to generate eyeballs on ads, just like today. So, here's the, here's the core of why I found this so fascinating. It starkly defines the, the boundary between where Garrett Smith is willing to go and where he's not willing to tread. It, it defines the, the boundaries of his progressivism because he says in this article, uh, he said he favored the women's rights movement but sternly denounced the view of marriage held by Mrs. Woodhull and her coterie. Let's look at what Woodhull actually said, and this is, uh, this is where I get into what I mentioned before about asking for help. Uh, as far as I can find from Wikipedia, all Woodhull said was some, some pretty tame-sounding stuff. Uh, where is it? In my show notes. Here we go. An activist for women's rights and labor reforms, Woodhull was also an advocate of free love, by which she meant the freedom to marry, divorce, and bear children without social restriction or government interference. Quote, they cannot roll back the rising tide of reform, end quote, she often said. Quote, the world moves, quote. Now I'm going to get back to Garrett Smith, but before I do that, we need to take a short ad break. 
Merchants, gargling oil is good for burns and scalds, chillblains, sprains and bruises, chapped hands, fresh wounds, frostbites, external po- poisons, sand cracks. <laughs> Sorry, I uh, I don't know why that that one hit me so hard. <laughs> uh, the spice must flow. Uh, galls of all kinds, sit fast, ringbone, pole evil, bites of animals and insects, toothache, etc., etc., rheumatism, hemorrhoids or piles, sore nipples. <clears throat> Caked breasts, fistula, mange, spacious, sweeney, scratches or grease, string howl, string howl, wind gall, foundered feet, cracked heels, foot rot in sheep, roop. In poultry, lame back, etc., etc. I'm sorry, this is the first time I've ever just completely lost it in an ad reading. I didn't think it was possible for an ad to present me with so many old timey afflictions that I've never heard of before. Large size, a dollar, medium, five. 50 cents? Small, 25 cents. The gargling oil has been in use as a liniment for 38 years. All we ask is a fair trial, but be sure and follow directions. Ask your nearest druggist or dealer in patent medicines for one of our almanacs and vetamecums and read what the people say about the oil. The gargling oil is for sale by all respectable dealers throughout the United States and other countries. Our testimonials date from 1833 to the present and are unsolicited. Use the gargling oil and tell your neighbors what good it has done. We deal fair and liberal with all and defy contradiction. Write for an almanac or cookbook. Manufactured at Lockport, New York by Merchants Gargling Oil Company, John Hodge, Secretary. We now return to our show. Wow, folks. <laughs> that was really something. So, back to Garrett Smith, and I'm trying to draw a picture of what someone who was interested in the women's suffrage movement might have seen when they were looking at Garrett Smith at this time. So let's take a look at the Onondaga Standard, Syracuse, Wednesday morning, November 3rd, 1847. This is the best example I've seen of Garrett Smith being such an outspoken free trader that other abolitionists got fucking sick and tired of him talking about it in abolition meetings. And they were like, shut the fuck up about free trade, dude. Abolition Convention. We have before noticed the assembling of the National Abolition Convention at Buffalo. Up to the close of the second day, Little had been accomplished, save speech-making. A correspondent says, Garrett Smith occupied the most of the forenoon in the delivery of a speech replete with agrarianism, free trade doctrines, etc. He was answered by Mr. Lovejoy of Illinois, who charged him with being a child in the school of abolition, and having learned to spell Baker, was now undertaking to instruct those from whom he had learned his lesson. During his speech, he was twice interrupted by Mr. Smith, who denied certain positions that Mr. Lovejoy charged Smith with assuming, which were embraced in some spicy remarks. 
of Mr. Lovejoy in relation to Mr. Smith's letter to Mr. Seward. The convention closed on Thursday evening, having nominated John P. Hale of New Hampshire for president and Lester King of Ohio for vice president. The commercial says, Like other parties, they found that they could not agree upon all matters of opinion. Some portion of them held that the Constitution does not sanction slavery and gives the Union a power to abolish it, whilst the others held the contrary opinion. Considerable discussion took place as to the proper basis of the party, some thinking that its sole object was the destruction of Negro slavery, whilst others, led by Garrett Smith, were in favor of adopting resolutions declaratory of their opinions upon the proper course of the national policy of this country, including abolition of slavery, free trade, anti-land monopoly, universal suffrage, without distinction on account of color, and a general system of political and social equality. Hugh here. So, why did Garrett Smith care so much about free trade? Well, there are at least two answers to that, and I don't claim to be an expert on this. I intend to have conversations with people who know more about him than I do at the Garrett Smith Museum. But for now, I can tell you, based on the research I have done, he had teachers for whom free trade was a huge deal. But I think, more to the point, there were biblical precepts that Garrett Smith found foundational to his, to his ethos. Uh, the biblical precept of a man having a right to the fruits of his own labor is the, is the core from which his views on abolition and his views on free trade arose. So he was a, he was a true believer. And from what I understand, he was a true believer about this economic principle because of biblical precepts. Sorry, I'm skipping around in my show notes here, but uh, ah, here we go. There's some more material uh, that you'll see in the, the show notes that back up uh, my assertion that he was a real pain in the ass to other abolitionists. Uh, these are from the calendar of Garrett Smith papers at Syracuse University, uh, volume two. Uh, these are just little uh, index cards, summaries of material that I haven't seen, but the summaries are enough for, for this purpose. Uh, 1847, November 26th, J.E. Norton of Morrisville accuses Smith of attempting to make Norton's paper a reform paper advocating free men, free soil, and free trade. The Democratic Party is no more in ruins than the Liberty Party, no matter what Smith thinks. Then, on November 29th, Francis Dennison of Kalamazoo, Michigan, regrets Smith is not at leisure to accept his proposition, does not think the question of tariff and land distrib distribution worthy of the liberty men at the present time, claims Smith advocates a policy different from that in 1845. 1850, May 21st, Francis Julius Lemoyne of Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, tells of his 15 years service to the party, the Liberty Party, is discouraged because members of the party have compromised with the enemy. The American people are impatient with slow progress in anything. The anti-slavery reformation must necessarily be slow, and the American people have not the patience to wait for its progress. Does not agree with Smith's Liberty Party creed, especially on the free trade and land questions. The American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society has been advised to arouse the inhabitants of New Mexico to the danger of slavery. 1815, same guy, Lemoyne. Sorry, 1850, I meant to say, June 17th. Same guy, uh, Julius Lemoyne. Gives his definition of free trade and land reform and feels his views on these issues do not quite harmonize with Smith's interpretations. Believes the theory of free trade is the true theory and would be the most conducive to national and individual happiness and prosperity if men were in a state of practical brotherhood. Reminds Smith... His, Lemoyne's, opinion on a protective tariff does not coincide with Smith's as to land reform, is opposed to land monopoly, and wants every man to have as much land as he can use profit profitably. Mmm, yummy tea. Does not agree at all with Smith's views regarding his temperance 
The temperance question believes it is the right of every man to drink and eat what he wants. The moderate drinker should not have to suffer because of a few drunkards. Another letter from Lemoyne, July 28, 1851. Received copies of the Frederick Douglass paper, The North Star. It is ably edited and will be an efficient instrument in its proper department, anti-slavery cause. Asks Smith to attend the Liberty Party Convention at Cleveland, Ohio. Although their views differ on free trade and temperance, they may modify each other into a complacent and satisfactory community of faith, except that Smith's presidential candidate is out of the question. 18... 31, May 2nd, N. Bunner of Oswego, New York. Unexpected accident prevented him from paying the two notes on his way through Utica. The new president's cabinet will be a strong one. Cannot say there will be a unanimity of personal views. John McLean and Edward Livingston are in favor of internal improvement. Letter is a high Latter is a high-tariff man and the former a moderate. Hugh Lawson White is a sensible, active, firm man. George C. McWhorter has not arrived, is expected next week. Did I miss something about Smith in there? No, 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 that was, I just included that because of the free trade issue, and uh, Smith was right in the middle of that. And let me see here, there's another one of Loring Fowler from 1845. Smith's letter to Mr. Rand reveals his weak position, has read the letter over a dozen times, sometimes to three or four persons. Peter Robertson recalls Saturday's discussions as to the Liberty Party's stand on the tariff, banks, treasury, etc. Knows Rand would state Smith had assailed the tariff. Reports it is said Rand spent an evening with S.R. Samuel Gridley Howe, another with Clemens and H. Williams. Mr. Caleb Calkins left yesterday for the North. So you see the the thread here. All of these people are expressing a degree of preoccupation with, uh, I know I'm not going to agree with Smith. Uh, I know what was Smith's, what Smith would say about that. Oh, Smith. 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 1845, December 19th. Silas Hawley, Syracuse, has read Smith's letter in the Albany Patriot, perceives that he continues to assert that the Liberty Party is committed to but one idea, favors inclusion of such topics as judicial reform, universal suffrage, the tariff, bank, and other questions. The worst form slavery takes in this state is disfranchisement on account of color. So there's that constellation of papers that give you a sense of what a, uh, I don't know, Garrett Smith was almost like the the Star Wars fanboy who insisted to all the other fanboys that this one uh, non-canonical book was crucial to being a Star Wars fan, and anybody who hasn't read that book is not a real Star Wars fan, and all the other, even the other nerds, even the other abolition nerds are like, dude, shut up about the Timothy Zahn books. Just stop bringing them up in the Star Wars meetings, okay? That was Garrett Smith on free trade. So, why am I talking about this in relation to this letter about... Smith and Woodhull. Well, two years before this article was printed, disagreements over the importance of black rights split the women's suffrage movement. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton formed the NWSA, and Lucy Stone formed the AWSA. Now, for more details on that whole tragic drama, see episode three of this podcast, Sisming Suffragettes, and the one of uh, the one with my interview on with Ruth Hotelling uh, of the uh, of the uh, uh, wow mental block mental block uh, my interview with Ruth Hotelling. Uh, so uh, where was I? For years, I've 
For years, I've found this schism that began in 1870, 1867, and resulted in those two organizations with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and I on one side and Lucy Stone on the other as one of the great tragedies of the 19th century. And once I look at this, I can better understand why someone in Anthony's position might become enraged enough to develop a hostility towards another progressive movement. Uh, if this short article fairly represents Smith's views, and I know that's a big if, because again, this is just a hot take, right? I, I don't know if they're glossing over Smith's views, and maybe maybe there was more nuance than that. I don't know. But if this short article that I read at the top fairly represents Smith's views, then it must have been difficult watching someone so rich and influential dump so much money and attention on the black rights movement, yet denounce Woodhull's ideas about women owning their own bodies. I know nothing about Woodhull aside from what I read in Wikipedia. That's why I'm wondering if anyone out there knows her in depth. From what I can see, she said nothing that someone with Smith's views had any good reason to object to especially considering everything that I've just said about Smith's rabid free trade stance and his, his apparent basing of his ethos on biblical precepts that people are entitled to the fruits of their own labor. Or should I say men? I think that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? Because if Smith did, in fact, get his ideological underpinnings from the Bible, then it does make sense that that's where he'd draw the line, right? Because it's men, specifically, that have those rights to the fruits of their labor and to their bodies. Uh, the Bible, in a lot of ways, is a reflection of the old... British English, pre-British English notion of the great chain of being with men over women. So it stands to reason that even a, a rabid free trader like Smith might draw that line and, oh, no, 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 uh, of course women don't have the right to control wh whether or not they're, they're married or when they fall in love or when they have sex. No, that's just crazy talk. So getting back to my point, that aspect of my narrative here tonight, the, 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 the aspect of my narrative relating to Woodhull is a big question mark to me because I know nothing about her. So does anybody out there know a lot about Wood, Woodhull's uh, teachings, about her speaking, about what she advocated for? Because maybe there's something here that I don't know. What I can see on the surface tells me that Smith was, from the point of view of some, somebody like Susan B. Anthony, Smith was a motherfucker. And I can absolutely understand why someone in her position would look at that and go, fuck this shit, I want nothing to do with harmony between the black rights movement and the women's rights movement if people who support the black black rights movement are going to fuck me like that. So I'm tossing that question out to you because my, my, my knowledge of this is limited. Historic headlines will return after this word from our sponsor. Jurubeba, what is it? It is a sure and perfect remedy for all diseases of the liver and spleen, enlargement or obstruction of the intestines, urinary, uterine, or abdominal organs, poverty or a want of blood, intermittent or remittent fevers, inflammation of the liver, dropsy, sluggish circulation of the blood, abscesses, tumors, jaundice, scrofula, dyspepsia, ague and fever, and their co-concomitants. 
Dr. Wells, having become aware of the extraordinary medicinal properties of the South American plant called Jurubeba, sent a special commission to that country to procure it in its native purity, and having found its wonderful curative properties to even exceed the anticipations formed by its great reputation, has concluded to offer it to the public, and is happy to state that he has perfected arrangements for a regular monthly supply of this wonderful plant. He has spent much time experimenting and investigating as to the most efficient preparation from it for popular use, and has for some time used in his own practice, with most happy results, the effectual medicine now presented to the public as Dr. Wells' Extract of Jurubeba, and he confidently recommends it to every family as a household remedy, which should be freely taken as a blood purifier in all derangements of the system, and to animate and fortify all weak and lymphatic temperaments. John Q. Kellogg, Platt Street, New York, sole agent for the United States, price $1 per bottle, send for circular. And we're back! So, in trying to be extemporaneous, instead of just reading dryly from my notes, I need to make sure I haven't forgotten anything, and I don't think I have. I've skipped around quite a bit, but I think think I made all the points I wanted to make. The main point being, hey, if you know anything about um, about Wood Woodhall and uh, why somebody like Garrett Smith might have uh, drawn the line at her rhetoric, hit me up. Now, moving on to the denser material. This is the material that really made me stop and think, there's no way in hell, there's no way in hell I am going to ever have the time to do enough in-depth research to explain to you everything packed into these political articles. Maybe I shouldn't try. Maybe I should try parsing them in real time and inviting you folks listening to help me out. So here goes. Again, this is from 150 years ago yesterday. The Evening Telegraph from uh, Philadelphia. Jeff Davis and the Democracy from the New York Times. The ex-president of the Confederacy is getting to be a veritable old man of the mountain to the Democratic Party. The frantic efforts they are now making to shake him off are laughable when one remembers how they have been wont to sympathize with him, apologize for him, and give him aid and comfort in times past. It would not be strange if the democracy should be found ere long clamoring for his life as loudly as they formerly pleaded to save him from the gallows. The world, which used to be his best friend and firmest supporter, is especially venomous in its present treatment of the rebel chief. It has taken to calling him names and actually surpasses, in its contemptuous epithets, the vituperation which, during the rebellion, it poured out upon the head of President Lincoln. In a single article in Friday's World, we find the once-renowned, patriotic, virtuous, and brilliant Jeff stigmatized as, quote, Broken old Jeff Davis, quote, an utter political wreck, a, quote, bankrupt politician, a false prophet indulging in his dotage, folly, etc. A cause must be desperate indeed, says the world, that can find no better advocate than Jeff Davis. Jeff might reply with equal truth that a cause must be desperate indeed that can find no better advocate than the world. Of the two, we think Jeff Davis is the ablest, as he certainly is the most honest and consistent advocate. He does not change his principles with every change of the moon. He does not call men swindlers, thieves, and highway robbers one day, and pure and honest officials the next. This may be owning this may be owing to his never having edited a corporation newspaper. Jeff is a wicked criminal, we admit, 
and ought to be hanged, but he is no more wicked than he was eight or ten years ago, when the world and the Democratic Party were giving him all the aid and encouragement they dared to give. Indeed, we cannot see wherein Jeff Davis differs from the Democratic Party as they stood even one year ago. He still believes in the lost cause. This is Hugh breaking in here. I need to make absolutely sure you're paying attention because, did you hear that? This is one of the many examples from newspaper articles of this time, 1868 to 71, let's say. That's the main period I've been following. From this time in which people are already referring to the lost cause in a way that makes it clear that they're, they're already groaning over this. The lost cause has been a thing and a threadbare, worn-out, tiresome thing ever since the war. This is 1871, and this newspaper writer is rolling his eyes over someone believing in the lost cause. Think about that. All right, returning to the article. He still believes in the lost cause, and if there was any meaning in their words, so did they. He is for keeping open the issues which Republicans claim were settled by the war. So were they. The world talks about the, quote, complete unanimity of the Democratic Party in discarding bygone issues, end quote, and says, quote, the New York democracy defined their position long ago, end quote. How long, pray? It is barely a year since the Democratic Party of New York met in convention at Rochester to nominate judges of the Court of Appeals. There was no particular necessity for introducing party politics, and especially national politics, into such a, a convention, but the democracy did introduce them nevertheless. They were so full of the subject that they could not keep it out, and what did they say? The burden of the speeches was precisely in accordance with the position occupied by Jeff Davis today. The constitutional amendments were to be resisted at all hazards, and the state judiciary was to be made a party to the new revolution. One of the chief speakers in that convention, and the man who acted as spokesman of the Tammany delegation, was Richard O'Gorman, the silver-tongued O'Gorman, as the democracy delight to call him. Hugh breaking in here. This is where it starts to get dicey. I don't know very much about Tammany Hall, but clearly the writer is making an allusion here to uh, just intrinsic corruption in the Tammany ring as represented by Richard O'Gorman. So if anybody uh, knows the Tammany ring, better than I do, please hit me up. Back to the article. In advocating the nomination of Sanford E. Church for Chief Justice, Mr. O'Gorman said that, quote, the Democratic Party required a politician for Chief Justice of the Court of Appeals quite as much as a lawyer. The usurpations of Congress and the so-called amendments of the Constitution, which that body had imposed on the country, required a man at the head of the judiciary of this state who would stand firm. We had gone through, and might still go through, revolutionary times. End quote. There was only one Democrat in the convention, Mr. Ruger of Onondaga, who had the courage to rebuke these utterances. The majority applauded them, and Mr. Church was nominated against Judge Comstock, who was the candidate of those who, like Mr. Ruger, argued that the state of New York needed a great lawyer and not a great politician for chief judge. Hugh here. So there's a lot to unpack there. And again, please go to the show notes. It's a hell of a lot easier if you're reading the, the original article along with my narrative. The gist of this seems to be that this Ruger guy from Onondaga was the only guy out of all the Democrats who had the ethical bearing to say, uh, dude, we need a great lawyer here, not a great politician, 
for chief judge. All the other Democrats were trying to inject a political candidate into a judgeship. Sound familiar? Now, I'm not clear on whether or not there's any great significance to the fact that the only guy who took this ethical stance was the guy from Onondaga. Um, If there's anybody out there who knows, hit me up, because this is the only reason that I came upon this article. Because uh, in following along uh, with newspapers from 100 and 150 years ago today, what I do is I go to Chronicling America, and I just search for the words Syracuse or Onondaga on whatever day I'm on. And this article came up because that guy was from Onondaga. So the the politics of Syracuse at this time are so complicated because there's so much residual bigotry and the the Syracuse Daily Courier, Courier and Union, known across the country during the Civil War and during Reconstruction as one of the vilest copperhead rags in the country, was still pumping out its bile. So in a way, it's a little bit surprising to me that I'm watching someone call out this Democrat from Onondaga as being the one ethical guy in the whole herd. Uh, because, I don't know, that just, that just strikes me as odd given what I know about the Syracuse Democrats at this time. But clearly they were trying to rebrand themselves and... Um, Yeah, meeting with varying degrees of success. So, back to the article. Who believes that the Democratic Party of this state really holds any different principles now from what they did a year ago? And why should they attempt to hiss down Jeff Davis now for uttering sentiments which they applauded then? They ought rather to reward him for his fidelity and to adopt as a candidate the man whom, for ten years... They have followed as a guide. Hugh here. So that's the end of the article. And uh, obviously the overall gist of this is that, hey, Democrats, don't pretend to be all high and mighty and ethical now. You loved Jeff Davis just up to a year ago. You, you, lo- you, you lapped up what he was putting out. So don't, don't come to me with all this uh, moral crap. We, we, know, we know which way the wind is blowing. Historic headlines will return after this brief commercial message. Agents wanted for the history of the war in Europe. It contains over 100 fine engravings of battle scenes and incidents in the war and is the only authentic and official history of that great conflict, published in English and German. Caution! Inferior histories are being circulated. See that the book you buy contains 100 fine engravings and maps. Send for circulars and see our terms and a full description of the work. Address National Publishing Company. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We now return to our show. Here's the second article of the two that I found yesterday. The Chicago Tribune, Monday, June 5th, 1871. Hurrah for Greeley! Oh, this is going to be good, folks. You know it's going to be good when good old H.G. comes around. Let's dive in. Some weeks since, Mr. Greeley committed himself in a letter to a Kansas politician to an implied promise that he would run for president if the duty should be pressed upon him by a grateful country and 100 others. Hugh breaking in, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is it. I should have known this, but uh, the Syracuse newspapers I've been following are so fucking blurry because they are third generation microfilm scans on Fulton history that I haven't had the wherewithal to, to squint and, and scrunch up my face to, to try to figure out what they actually say. So I haven't gotten around to reading all the articles that I've seen come up about Greeley. And this is why I've seen Greeley's name. This is when he is throwing his hat in the ring for his presidential race. Reading on. 
Mr. Greeley has been, in the meantime, circulating through the territory of the South, but he has not traveled half as far nor as fast as has his proposition, or rather his endorsement of another man's proposition to make him a presidential candidate has traveled on the wings of the newspaper press. Greeley for president has commanded attention from all hearers. The Pennsylvania ironmonger heard the watchword and hurrahed. The Graham-bred men heard it and cried amen. Hugh here. Uh, again, follow along with the show notes, or you won't know that uh, when he says Graham-bred, uh, he spells it capital G-R-A-H-A-M-bread. Uh, haven't done the research, so I don't know who, uh, who Graham is, but it's clearly a pun. The Graham-bred men heard it and cried, Amen! The Berks County farmer, who had found justification in wearing his ancient gray coat of the Clay campaign, because, as he said, Greeley wears them, heard it and echoed the cry. Hugh here. Now, remember, the primary ideological axis of the last couple of decades has been free trade versus protection, as promulgated decades prior by Jackson and Clay, right? Clay was a, a, a protection guy, a government intervention in large interstate projects for the public good guy, where Jackson was a rabid anti-protection, anti-trust, anti-tariff, anti-anti-anti guy. He was all about uh, the individual being unrestricted by government, and that meant no federal oversight, no federal projects, no federal money going towards stuff that uh, some other guy might benefit from, uh, basically. Uh, so, clearly, I, I don't know all the details of Greeley's uh, gray coat. Clearly, it was a symbol, uh, but uh, according to, to this allusion, uh, apparently Greeley wore a gray coat as an allusion to the, the, the Clay campaign decades ago. So there's that. Back to the article. The Southern rebel whom the good old man proposed to amnesty before he got home from the war heard it and answered, he's the man for weans. Hugh breaking in again. In case you don't know, Horace Greeley was pilloried towards the end of the war because of his unexpected stance of wanting leniency for the South. Um, a lot of people didn't expect that from such a progressive populist as, as he was, but he felt really strongly that there would be a, a bounce back, a, a boomerang effect, that if if the U.S. harshly pursued punitive policies towards the South, they would dig in out of sheer spite and, and hostility, and it would be much worse for national unity and much worse just in terms of the, the South actually doing the right thing than it would be if we were just relatively hands-off and lenient, especially in terms of punishing Confederate commanders. And a lot of people absolutely hated him and called him a coward for that. So that's what that referred to. The poor young man whom Horace has been constantly advising to, quote, take $250 and go west, end quote, and who would have done so but for the want of $250, heard it and gave a qualified assent. The head of the late Confederacy, whom Greeley bailed out of prison when the country wanted him hanged, has evidently not heard of the nomination, or else he has none of the chivalry which moved his soft-hearted and white-coated bondsman. For although Davis has made many speeches of late and said many favorable words for Jeff Davis, he has not vouchsafed so much as a syllable for his liberator. This ungratefulness is, however, exceptional. The country is rising, more or less, for Greeley, and it is not the least touching feature of the general eruption to find, quote, those little creatures whom Providence, for some inscrutable purpose, permits to edit the majority of the country papers, end quote. Recognizing their own photograph, 
and coming out almost to a man for the philosopher of Chappaqua. Hugh here. Chappaqua, New York, is where Greeley is from. The little creatures whom Providence, for some inscrutable purpose, permits to edit the majority of the country papers. Uh, that's I don't know where that quote comes from, but it's clearly a reference to uh, newspaper editors being too big for their britches and not deserving the positions of influence in which they find themselves. Uh, where was I? Almost, uh, philosopher of Chappaqua. One of these, published in Galveston, where the philanthropist has recently been sojourning, as if to heap coals of fire upon his bald head, says apparently in all sincerity concerning the demonstration recently made in his honor in that town, quote, it is the homage which the Israelite bestows on the virtues of a crucified Jesus. It is the respect that royalty lays on the grave of Washington. It is the honor that loyal men and loyal soldiers give to the memory of their dead enemy, General Lee. It is the tear that old rebels drop for the homely virtues and kindly heart of their dead enemy, Abraham Lincoln. It is the tribute that Manhood gives to integrity, and this lesson, impressed upon our young, is worth a dozen schools and a half score of colleges. End quote. Shooting northward to St. Paul, we find one of the quote, little creatures end quote, of that northerly town patronizing the Kansas man's movement in a lofty way. Hugh here. Uh, I was confused a little bit by that reference to the quote-unquote Kansas man, and uh, then I remembered, oh, up towards the beginning of the article, uh, the letter from a guy in Kansas is what spurred this whole deal of uh, Greeley throwing his hat in the ring in the first place. That's why they're referring to him as the Kansas man. Uh, little creatures of that northerly town patronizing the Kansas man's movement in a lofty way and remarking that if he, H.G., could be nominated and elected, which he could be, there is no man within the limits of the Republic who would make a better president. <clears throat> Among the office-holding organs of the present administration, the disposition is to poo-poo at the idea of hanging up the white coat in the White House. The Rock Island Union, which will wager has some connection with the post office, remarks that, Quote, the old gentleman is pulling at the wrong string, end quote, and that, quote, the Tribune and the farm need his undivided attention. The Milwaukee Sentinel, too, which will hear of no candidate but Grant, swells itself up monstrously and indicts an ironical picture of the, quote, good time coming, end quote, when Greeley shall sit in the presidential chair and all our sons shall till the soil and all our daughters milk the looing cows, and when not only, quote, the good old Whig doctrine of one term, quote, but the good old Whig doctrines generally shall be put again in force. But the press generally receives the new candidate with open arms. The Syracuse Standard is apparently willing to become Greeley's standard as well. It inquires, quote, why not Horace as well as some poorer man, quote, and claims that, Quote, to run him where to it to run him were to ensure either the most splendid success or the most ignoble defeat, end quote, which it will not, we presume, attempt to predict until after election. It adds quote, But then the question recurs why does he desire to be president? His pen is mightier than any ruler's command, his tripod more exalted than any monarch's throne. We cannot fathom the idiosyncrasies of great minds. Mr. Greeley was willing to be comptroller and has not disdained congressional and gubernatorial honors. The ambition to descend from the desk of the Tribune to the chair of state at Washington is a singular one, but if Mr. Greeley entertains it, we think it would be safe for the American people to gratify him in it. Hugh here, breaking in again. Now, again, the only reason I found this article was because it contained the word Syracuse. And here, this, uh, where was I? The, again, this is the Chicago Tribune, is quoting extensively from <clears throat> the Syracuse Standard. Now, I don't want to go overboard in presenting Syracuse as some kind of 
of editorial hub of the newspaper world. But from what I've seen over the last six years, I will go out on a limb and say that Syracuse shows up disproportionately in the national press for a whole bunch of reasons. And that's reflected in, that's reflected in these little insets where other newspapers will, will quote the Syracuse Standard and the, the Syracuse Journal quite frequently. Uh, Syracuse was really high, uh, it showed up on the radar uh, both with uh, politics and culture disproportionately at this time. Uh, we think it would gratify him in it. Even the newspapers of his own city, where a philosopher as well as a prophet is expected to be without honor, Hugh here, that means New York City, hail the proposed nomination with favor. The Journal of Commerce, which certainly is a conservative sheet, thinks Greeley strong, and that his hint in the Kansas letter that he could not be counted on to support Grant for renomination will seriously weaken that candidate. The Herald growls, of course, and attributes the opposition of Greeley and Fenton to Grant to the refusal of the latter to heed their advice about the Custom House appointments. But who cares for the Herald? The Sun, whose editor may, perhaps, be accused of a partiality for Greeley, rejoices in his one-term theory and hopes he may not lose sight of it after four years in the chair of state, as Grant has been doing. Even the world favors the idea of the philosophers running, on account of the life and humor which it will impart to the campaign. Quote, no candidate, unquote, it says. Quote, would so enliven the canvas and contribute so much to the public amusement as the venerable sage of Chappaqua. The campaign would open with a universal guffaw of jovial excitement. Every Democrat and every Republican would be high and hilarious. There would be no end to the jibes and the jokes and the funny lampoons and the grotesque pictorial cartoons caricatures, and the comic campaign songs with which the presidential canvas would be enlivened. There would be a universal kicking up of heels and turning of somersaults. Since the Republican Party is foredoomed to die in 1872, we can think of no way in which its euthanasia could contribute so much to general good humor. It would go out amid shouts of laughter, by all means, give us Mr. Greeley for the Republican candidate in 1872 and let his defeat inaugurate an era of good feeling. Barkus is willing, and it is a pity the politicians should not consent. Hugh here, I don't know what Barkus refers to. It's got a hyphen at the beginning. Uh, apparently it's short for something else. Anybody know what that illusion is? Hit me up. So, back to the main article. It is evident that the satirists of the world are itching at their fingers' ends to get a good chance to put in their jibes and jokes, and that three or four hundred bohemians of New York would rush to the newspaper offices the very next morning after Greeley's nomination with campaign songs lampooning the new candidate, the which they would gladly dispose of at a penny a line. Indeed, this aspect of the movement ought to commend it most of all to the philosopher's goodwill, for it would set as a stimulus to native literary it would act as a stimulus to native literary effort. It would protect American industry, but since it would not do this through the prohibition of the pauper literature of Great Britain, and especially since it would not have the effect to make the commodity dearer to the consumer, we doubt whether the idea will commend itself to Mr. Greeley as one according with the good old Whig doctrine. <sighs> Hugh here. Okay, a lot to unpack there. Uh, so the main writer of the article, the Chicago Tribune, is, is saying that it would protect American industry, but since it would not do this through the prohibition of the pauper literature of Great Britain, uh, remember that uh, uh, Greeley was a protection guy, so the joke is that uh, Greeley would be for tariffs that would prevent literature coming in from Great Britain. Not, sh not sure what's going on there. Uh, that seems like a bit of a stretch. Uh, and especially since it would not have the effect to make the commodity dearer to the consumer. Okay, here, here's where the you've got to understand the Chicago Tribune's stance on the tariff. Now, remember my previous episodes about Syracuse Salt? 
Remember how the Syracuse paper was fighting a two-front war against the New York World and the Chicago Tribune, and the extended argument with the Chicago Tribune made it really clear that the Chicago Tribune was an anti-tariff, pro-free trade newspaper, and at least in terms of the salt trade in Syracuse, the Syracuse newspapers were taking a pro-protection stance. So you can tell from that that, that here, that, that gives you some crucial context for interpreting this. The Chicago Tribune guy is saying that, well, uh, we doubt whether the idea will commend itself to Mr. Greeley because it doesn't make the commodity dearer to the consumer. In other words, Greeley's stupid-ass tariff policies are actually raising prices. That's the dig they're getting in here. Okay. Fortunately, however, he does not need any persuading, and may be counted on from the outset as a friend of the movement. It is satisfying to know, at least, that the coming man will not be hanging off until the last hour, like Seymour at New York, and weeping on somebody's shoulder, Jeff Davis, perhaps, and exclaiming, Oh, Davis, this is terrible! All right, that's the end of the article. Uh... Can I try to unpack that last sentence? It is satisfying to know, at least, that the coming man will not be hanging off until the last hour, like Seymour at New York. Sorry, I, I recognize that name, but I can't place him off the top of my head. I just read about that name, and I'm, it's just not coming to me. Um, hit me up! And weeping on somebody's shoulder... I got to know what that means. I'll, I'll cover that in the next episode, that, that allusion to a Seymour. Would that be Horatio Seymour, senator from New York? Did Seymour, did Seymour, yeah, that's right. Seymour ran for president, didn't he? Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, the idea is that Greeley won't be hanging off to the last hour and then crying on Jeff Davis's shoulder, exclaiming, Oh, Davis, this is terrible. Eh, maybe that joke would have been funny to somebody at the time. I'm I'm having a hard time parsing it. Anyway, those are the two articles mentioning Syracuse or Onondaga that I wanted to go through and try to make some sense of because I felt like they they presented a vivid cross section of the culture and politics of 150 years ago this week. And along with that brief article about Garrett Smith's hot take on Woodhull, I thought there was enough there that I, it wasn't realistic for me to hope that I was going to give you a well-researched background on every little facet of all of those. So I thought it would, re it would be reasonable to try just parsing them in real time and, uh, and see, see whether that makes for a more engaging podcast. Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Greatest of ease, a daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stolen away.